Welcome to episode two of She Brews Hebrews, a Jewish fermenting podcast where we hope to discuss all things homebrewing and fermentation, both biblical and modern, from a Jewish perspective, including beers, meads, ciders, wines, breads, pickles, cheeses, and much, much more. Today, we're going to be talking about Jewish breads. I'm your host, Evan Harris, and with me today is my co-host, Allison Shea. Hey there. So what are you drinking today, Evan? So right, right now I'm drinking some Anchor Steam Brewing a special barrel-aged edition that was from a trip out to some friends in San Francisco in 2019. Very nice. The sort of beer you can eat with a fork. Oh, it, it is uh, incredibly malty, and I, I'm happy. But what about you? I am drinking some lemon rosemary mead. Super tasty, super refreshing. Definitely something that I'm going to make again. That's the one you talked about in previous episodes, is it not? Yep. I was setting it up and then it was brewing back then and now I'm drinking it and it is really good. Yeah. It, when it was it fresh out of the bottle, it was like effervescent. It was so Ooh. good and now it's just really good. <laughs> I, I, I need to make some. I also need to grow my own rosemary again. Great natural deer repellent. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, it was also the only herb that I was able to grow in Florida. When I lived in Florida for a while, I tried to plant an herb garden. I had, let's see, rosemary, basil, mint, thyme, and oregano. And the iguanas ate all of it, (laughs) with the exception of the rosemary, which they wouldn't touch. So I had this big rosemary bush because it grows like nobody's business. I've had good success in Minnesota with rosemary, thyme, and basil. Apparently, you can bonsai rosemary, but that is a tangent we don't need to get into today. Bonsai itself is an interesting thing. Yes, I am seriously not familiar with it. So find a different expert for that one. We're not experts in any of this, but find an expert in bonsai. Today's subject, I think you are probably (laughs) a much bigger expert on than I am, though. Bread making. Oh, yeah. Definitely a topic that I have spent a lot of time on. My most recent loaf was a recipe that you sent me, Samin's focaccia. I mean, no srat of uh, salt, fat, acid, heat. Salt, fat, Uh, acid, heat. I will put that recipe in the show notes. It is a wonderful loaf. Really, really tasty recipe for focaccia. Would strongly recommend. It doesn't have any herbs or anything in it. So I always dump in a whole bunch of rosemary and thyme in there. And it's sometimes some garlic and it's always just a hit oh it was a hit with the friends i got to see nice yeah it's it makes Um, what looks like a big loaf but man you can really demolish one of those yeah in one night i went to a dinner at a friend's place and we ate the entire loaf that sounds about right wouldn't expect Um, anything less absolutely but you want to maybe explain a little bit about how uh, bread making works sure The things you need for Mm -hmm. bread are pretty much the same as what you need for fermenting a beverage. You need yeast. You need something for the yeast to eat, which is sugars or carbohydrates, which are just chains of sugars. You need water, which helps you develop the gluten. And you generally, not sometimes uh, people go light on this one for very particular recipes, uh, but you need salt. Salt inhibits the yeast growth. So you have the things that help the yeast grow, and then you have the things that hurt the yeast growth. Things that help the yeast grow will be sugars, pretty much. Any sort of sugars that you add and things that are going to inhibit your bread are going to be fats. 
So anything that's going to weigh the bread down. And there are things that are going to be good for the yeast to be eating, like fruits if you're adding them. But also because of the weight of them, that's also going to make it more difficult for you to get a rise. So there's a balance there. Uh, but generally, the idea is the same as with a fermentation, where the yeast uh, eats your sugars, it farts out the carbon dioxide, in this case, because you have the gluten strands in there, which are these stretchy elastic proteins that develop when certain types of uh, starches, like wheat, uh, barley, when they come into contact with water, can develop these gluten proteins, and those gluten proteins will stretch. And as your yeast is farting out its carbon dioxide, it's going to expand. So, like little little rubber mm -hmm. bands in there. That's pretty much it. <laughs> it's a pretty yeah. straightforward process. Very similar. No, again, this is something much like we discussed the last episode. <laughs> Bread making's been going on as long as brewing has, and that's quite a few thousand years. Unlike, say, beer. You actually try and separate out the grain. Bread, you obviously don't. Yeah. And like we mentioned last episode, you can use wild yeast for making breads, sourdough starters. There are ways of doing it without harvesting the yeast ahead of, <laughs> ahead of time. That is how the original breads would have been made. Exactly. So, I mean, bringing in the Jewish aspect here. Yeah, we have out. quite a history, don't we? Oh, this. yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, when the Jews were fleeing from Egypt, uh, the whole thing about not giving the bread time to rise, they literally were not giving it time to gather yeast and rise. There was no time to let that whole fermentation process happen. And it is a fermentation process. I don't know about they you, but as a little kid, I was thinking, ran. but it only takes like an hour, an hour and a half for bread to rise, doesn't it? Not realizing, oh, no, you had to, like, create a sourdough starter, which can take a week or more. Yeah, they were waiting for wild yeast to gather, and they couldn't do that. Yeah. It's, Clearly, it's, I've learned the difference since I was in uh, middle school. Yeah, there were levels of convenience to our processes now that they just didn't have back then. And it makes it so much easier for us to be doing things. But I guess you could say it also lends a uniformity to our foods now that didn't exist so much then. You know, we talk about like San Francisco sourdough, which is a very distinctive microorganism mm -hmm. that hops on with the yeast. And that's what gives it such a distinctive tangy flavor to it. And if yeah. you're just buying store yeast, I mean, I love my Red Star yeast as much as any other baker, but, you know, I'm not going to get as diverse of a flavor range as somebody who's got a wild yeast starter or somebody who's collecting wild yeah. yeast just no. as is. Yeah. Exactly. And last time we talked a little bit about the different types of yeasts you can use in brewing. In bread making, what I've noticed is that it tends to just be a single type of yeast that will ferment quickly and generate lots of CO2 as opposed to generating other sorts of flavors, which you do sometimes still want in home brewing that you don't necessarily want in bread making unless you're doing a proper sourdough. So all commercial yeast for bread tends to be closer to champagne yeast generating very neutral flavor. Yeah, I read a, a novel a while back, Sourdough. Like the name of the book was Sourdough, a novel by Robin Sloan. The book was quirky. It was an enjoyable mm -hmm. read. But one of the really big things that carries throughout the book is that this woman is gifted a sourdough starter and like 
her life starts to revolve around the sourdough starter. She starts a business around it and she cares for the sourdough starter. The sourdough starter that she's given has such a distinctive flavor. Everybody falls in love with it and it has a distinctive cracking pattern. Basically, when bread expands, you get a vent at the top of bread. And that's why people often slash it in certain ways. And it, her sourdough produces some distinctive faces on the surface. And that's kind of one of the, that's really one of the hallmarks. One of the things that's distinctive about her strain, but she talks a lot about different sourdoughs and how they're all very different. And this one is so special to her. It's very much a feel-good story in a lot of ways. And also at the beginning of the book, she's a really exhausted computer scientist by the end, just working with the sourdough has really changed her life. But anyways, the point of me mentioning that was that she talks about how every sourdough is going to be unique. Every sourdough starter is really unique and it's going to produce a unique flavor. It's going to vent differently. It's going to produce different gases. And I guess the beauty of having your own starter, it's yours. We want to go in a little to how to make a starter? I know how. Have you ever done one? I did do one. It failed. It did not go well. I I did it twice actually, and I think I think it got contaminated somehow both times because it ended up turning pink and orange. So that was not good. And I happened to think it's something about the bacteria in my parents' kitchen where I was working on it because this is something we'll probably talk about another time. But a couple months later, I made a lactic starter using, Mm -hmm. I I soaked some barley to make a lactic starter. And I ended up with some very similar discoloration, the same shades of pink and orange. And I mean, it did work. The lactic starter was fine for a while, but eventually it started picking up those same impurities. I don't know offhand what those could be. I will do some research because now I'm really curious. If any of our listeners know, please let us know. So I've had a little bit of success, but I'm not that good at making bread. I either underneed it or overneed it. I and I vast almost always vastly underneed my loaves of bread. So they don't hold in the air. Yeah. I just find it um, kind of therapeutic to keep kneading. So I always go longer than a recipe calls for. And given that I, I have carpal tunnel, so I'm not particularly uh, strong in the hands, even though a lot of it isn't. It's not really wrist movement. My hand just gets tired after a while. But kneading it for longer than recommended, but being weaker about it usually means that I get to approximately the right spot. That works. But how to make a sourdough starter, you start with approximately the same amount of flour and water by weight mixed together in a mason jar, other container that you can put a lid on and keep things out like flies and other bad. You want air to transfer though. Uh, And the first day, you don't want to throw out half of it. You just want to add the same amount of flour and water you did the day before, mix it together, let it sit. The day after that, you start throwing out half of it and feeding it with the same amount that you threw out, half mix of flour and water. You just keep doing that and feeding it. For at least seven days till you should notice a proper bubble and fermentation. It will grow after you feed it. In the show notes, links to Alton Brown and Food Wishes, ways to make a sourdough starter so you can have some video as well. There are people who've managed to save and freeze their starters. I do not know how to get into that, but a sourdough starter really is that simple. They were very popular last year. Yeah, the one that my roommate and I have now, if we want to use it, it is in the freezer most of the time. His name is Globert. Basically, we take it out 
we give it a nice feeding and that's about mm-hmm. it pretty straightforward yeah, no. sounds pretty like it. i can't eat that much bread so i tried a sourdough starter and it's like yeah no I, uh it's a little too much for me yeah um, i do not have one anymore but well, on, your pancreas there is are very unsurprisingly rude. a lot of jewish bread products yes my oh, pancreas yeah. is incredibly rude a recurring topic. it will be definitely be a recurring topic because it is a large part of my life or a small part of my life based on uh, volume, but it's a uh, small part of your life impact. based off of size, large based off of inconvenience. Yes, and insulin molecules are even smaller. Very rude. But there is a long history of Jewish bread products, which most people are at least partially familiar with, including, at least for me, basically every week growing up, challah. Oh, yeah. Definitely a big oh. one for us, too. I think most Jewish households. You're at least familiar with it, if not eating it. Yeah, most Jewish households, at least on this continent, especially among Ashkenazi families, because challah did develop more in Ashkenazi culture directly, normally perceived, the braided enriched loaf. Yeah. And there there are Sephardi and Mizrahi breads that are delicious and different. On Passover, you'll notice that they use, it is also matzah. But it looks very different from an Ashkenazi matzah. It's softer. It's more like laffa. So it's big, flat, mm-hmm. and floppy. I happen to think it's delicious. I am not a fan of a traditional Ashkenazi matzah. I am a firm believer that one of the difficulties of shmura matzah, which is the kind of charred stuff, the like handmade stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, I say this every year. My family is sick of this joke. But which part are you supposed to eat? The box or the stuff inside the box? Because it tastes the same. Yeah, matzah. It tastes like the box it came from. And you know what? It's gross. No, I, and you know I, what I else? Understand that. You're not going to shit I, I for still... a week. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's the, the, true. Uh, Passover is a very good call- holiday to eat low carb. Oh, yeah. But so unlike a lot of other enriched doughs like French brioche, challah, unsurprisingly, due to kashrut, is parav. We don't use butter in it basically the primary difference between a challah and a brioche or an egg challah and a brioche is that a challah is always dairy free and plenty of people who are not jewish are going to screw this up the really notable one is paul hollywood who is notorious for just, I, I mean, I would say at this point, the guy is pretty much anti-Semitic for how much he ruins his Jewish breads. Uh, the man I, is I, a I respect him for a lot of things. When it comes to anything close to a Jewish item, he manages to mess it up horribly. Oh, um, yeah. Remember when he said on Great British Bake Off how platted breads are a dying art? I can point out 20,000 Jewish mothers in Brooklyn who are you should see my my sister makes a very good platted challah. <laughs> most people I, most people I know who do baking can make a good platted challah because you know it's common. I would like to think that I make a pretty good platted. I believe you sent me oh. photos. I would agree. Oh, have I not sent you photos? Not recently, at least, but I believe in the past you have. So I would okay. agree. I'm not good. that good at it, but I don't make it often. My sister normally made it growing up. So she yeah. makes a very good challah. I've made a few. I have two different recipes that I really like, though, both of which are actually in the resources that will be in today's show notes. One oh. is from the Gefilte Manifesto, and the other is from the Zingerman's Bakehouse Cookbook. I will add my challah recipe, which is a water challah. My sister is a vegan, 
So I started making mm -hmm. vegan challah when we were both home at the same point. It's delicious. I'm a big fan. I use this recipe pretty much all the time. I personally, for my own cholesterol, tends not to be good. So I tend to ease up on the egg yolks. So whether or not that's the right thing to do, I don't know. I've heard conflicting information. But regardless, between that and my sister being a vegan, I typically make a vegan challah. And I will include that in the notes as well. Very tasty. On the topic of braiding your challah, a plaited loaf, it's, it's a braided loaf. It's just the British term. But mm -hmm. fun tradition to do with challah. This is not a super common one, but one of my favorite challah traditions is the Shabbat after Passover. It's got a name. I don't remember what the name is for that Passover. But anyways. S-H-L-I-S-S-E-L. Yeah, that's what you make. That's the type of challah that you make on that Shabbat, schlissel challah. And you make a schlissel in Yiddish means key. So either people bake a key into their challah, which for the sake of not destroying my teeth by accident, I do not do. But the other thing that people do is mm -hmm. they make their challah into a shape of a key, which is what I do. And it's just kind of a fun exercise in braiding a loaf in an interesting manner. It's sometimes they're pretty. There are some hilarious disasters that you can find online that are not safe for work. So I would recommend not doing it around any children or in your workplace. But it's a lot of fun. They're creative. They're really cute. Fun thing to do with your challah. So there's that, that's challahs. a tradition I only found out about this past Passover, thanks to the Jewish cooking subreddit. A few people posted theirs. I've been making them for like five or six years now. Yeah, mm -hmm. I just, I found out about it through a Facebook group called I Don't Cook, But I Give Out Recipes. The name is a lie. People <laughs> both cook and they give out recipes. And also they post pictures of their challahs. So mm -hmm. I saw it and started making them because it looked like fun. And you know, and it was fun. It, that it does. I will have ah. to try and make one next year. My tradition, first comments for the last few years has been homemade pizza. Oh, that's nice. I like that and one. I, I'm not very good at shaping them. They're delicious, but I'm trying to do a proper Neapolitan. Ooh, that's good. My challahs, my, not my challahs, my challahs are beautiful. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Paul Hollywood. <laughs> but my pizzas are always misshapen. Just a quick note, again, yeah. this is supposed to be a Jewish-themed podcast. <laughs> Schlissel, the, the key shape is, it's supposed to be for Parnassa, which is basically livelihood. It's, it's just kind of a tradition as Passover kind of marks the beginning of the year in the Jewish camp. It is one of the many New Years in the Jewish tradition. It's the first month. The idea is that you start the year off, that this should be a key to good and prosperous year for you. Another tradition with challah is for Rosh Hashanah. For the round challah. The other New Year, yeah, you make a round challah. It's kind of a note on the cyclical notion of the year. So they're just kind of, they're yeah, cute. The, uh, They've got meaning. The I... They're not mandatory by any means. You know, nobody's saying you have to do it this way. It's None just of it kind is of mandatory. fun. No, absolutely not. It's just, it's a fun way of marking the year. And it's a cute way of expressing yourself through a Jewish tradition. Exactly. These are all, these are all traditions. They're not halacha. You're not required to make challah. You're not required to make any of the breads we're going to talk about today. But the traditions are important. And they mean a lot to people. They mean a lot to at least both of us. Yeah. And they're tasty. At least 
And these tasty. ones are tasty. <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm a big we, fan of them can tasty traditions. Hopefully we can make everyone else make theirs tasty as well. But beyond, there are breads beyond galas. So I have a question for you. Chocolate or cinnamon? Yes. Babka, chocolate. Oh, actually, I will give you my babka recipe as well in the show notes. It's the Chabad.org babka recipe. I've been using it for years. I love it. It takes forever. It takes like four <laughs> or five hours. I would recommend leaving the dough outside in the summertime to rise because it's a tough one, guys. But, oh boy, you will not regret making it. Enjoyed the babka recipes from both of the books I mentioned earlier, as well as physical loaves that I've bought from Zingerman's because I love Zingerman's. Uh, but babka is another traditional Jewish fermented bread. And even though it is also part of, tends to be a heavier dough than challah, therefore takes longer to prove. Basically, how I mentioned before that you add things to the yeast that make it livelier sugars that are going to be helpful for it to grow better. When you add those fats, it's going to weigh the bread down. It's not going to rise as well. So babka is typically made with what's called an enriched dough, which is a dough that has those fats added to it. So it'll have egg, it'll have margarine or oil. Margarine or, or but I think yeah. in Israel they do use butter. So that would not, that I'm would sure of people course use be dairy, butter. but. Traditionally, um, babka is made parv. But all of those fats adding it down makes a much richer bread, but it also means that it takes a lot longer for you to get any sort of rise out of it, and you have to be patient with it. I live in a relatively humid, and at least this time of year, pretty warm area, so I leave my enriched bread doughs outside to rise for things like that. Just just so that I'm not waiting for too long. Yeah, that. no, an enriched dough, especially a laminated dough, which babka is, where you actually make layers, can also take a while. So the next traditional Jewish fermented bread on our list are everyone's favorite breakfast food. Montreal or New York, Evan. Answer this correctly. I prefer New York. Okay, thank you. I do like a, a Montreal bagel is delicious, but a New York bagel is better. New York bagels just scream home to me. I, I live in the South now, yeah. but I really do identify if, myself as a New Yorker to a certain degree. I'm not a Southerner. Gotta no, have my no. bagels. I lived in the South for 14 years and I don't identify as a Southerner. <laughs> yeah. If anyone would like to come on and challenge Allison for representing Montreal and or Jerusalem bagels, we'd love to have that as an episode. Oh yeah, always. But I, I can't oh. really... I'm not experienced in the making of Montreal or Jerusalem bagels, but I can tell you that if you're trying to make yourself a New York bagel, yes, your water is important. But another thing that people often miss, we'll try, we'll try to make bagels outside of New York. Bagels are supposed to be boiled in barley malt. That's the sugar that's supposed to be added to help the yeast rise. It's supposed to be done with barley malt and boiling them before you bake them are what give New York bagels that really distinct chewy outside and their yeasty flavor. Yes, I mean, there's flavor from the yeast, but they have yeah. that very distinctive barley malt flavor to them that you'll immediately be aware of if you've eaten a New York bagel. I think Montreal uses both barley and honey or barley and sugar to get that water even sweeter. But their fermentation is done at a pretty cold temperature to develop some more of those yeasty flavors. And unlike store-bought bagels, bagels must be boiled. I repeat, yes. bagels must be 
boiled. No steaming. They are boiling. a poached bread. There are steamed breads. There are lots of steamed yes. breads. There are uh, griddled breads. There are lots of steamed breads. Hmm? But bagels are not them. Bagels are put in a pot Bag- of boiling water. And then you flip them over, keep boiling them. They only boil for, I usually do 60 seconds on each side, sometimes a little less. But that's all yeah, they They here. are boiled. They are boiled breads. I know it sounds weird. Trust us on this. It, you Otherwise, want that you nice crispy layer on the outside. You want boiling. Seriously, it's a great article on the science that I will link in the show notes. <laughs> but bagels are very Jewish bread, though they are now very common. Yeah. And they're delicious. Would they are absolutely delicious. I don't eat them very often, but that is something where Paul Hollywood has not been very good. No. The Great British Bake Off or Great British Baking Show, it is, as it's known in America, because Pillsbury owns the copyright on the term Bake Off. Hey, Evan. Uh, yeah. Do you think we should include the abomination that is Paul Hollywood's holla recipe? Or chola recipe, as he says <laughs> it? Joke. We- should we include that in uh, the show yes, notes? Yes, let's include that. So we will include uh, in the show notes someplace to avoid his chala recipe. And if I can find it, his bagel recipe. They've done bagels at least twice on Great British Bake Off. And they did them dirty. The first time was better than the second. Both were bad, though. Their babka recipe was so bad. Oh, my God. I was sitting there cringing. Oh, it was bad. In the first season that was available on American Netflix, I forget what series number it is uh, referred to now. I think five. One of the contestants, whose names I'm forgetting, made a babka and she had spent some time in Israel. Her babka as the signature challenge was good. Yes. And it sounded delicious. She made like a pistachio one. Yeah. I would have eaten that. You know, mm-hmm. she put some effort into it and really seemed to go in there wholeheartedly. Yes, Paul Hollywood has a lot of great recipes and a lot of good knowledge. Do not trust him on anything remotely Jewish. No, it's an abomination. It is truly an insult. He but, says, so the bagels, a little bit of history on the bagel, though. The bagel was effectively brought to America through Polish immigrants, though at the time it was still pretty much Tsarist Russia. And it does come from the old High Germanic via Yiddish for ring. And of course, there's the Jerusalem bagel, which are not boiled normally. I think they're allowed. Jerusalem bagels, I would say, are distinct from a classic bagel. You know, they're not true bagels. So I think they should be accepted as their own entity in the same way that a Jerusalem artichoke is unrelated to an actual artichoke. Absolutely. A little bit of the history on this. Jerusalem bagels, and I'd love to hear from an actual food anthropologist on this, but I think modern bagels come through Jewish immigrants to Poland from what the predecessor to Jerusalem bagels through, you know, 2000 years of history and exile. The Jerusalem bagels are actually effectively a take on the old imperial Roman army rations, the Buraceltium, which also have a similar relative in Arabic culture, which is more like a bagel crisp. But also in Britain and Northern Europe, hardtack effectively evolved from the same item. Which is kind of a cool, cool path. Absolutely. And in the early 11th century, and this is cited on Wikipedia, Rabbi Haigaon described ka'ak, which is the sort of middle step between Jerusalem bagels, bagels, and the old imperial Roman rations as the hardest, as being the hardest biscuit 
usually eaten as a dessert made dry with or without spices. So crackers. Basically old crackers. Bagel chips. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> we've come full circle and we've gotten to bagel chips. We've come full circle and got into bagel chips. Which um, I do happen to like. Another bagel question. Do you toast your bagels or no? Depends on whether it's fresh. If it's fresh, then no. If it's more than a couple hours old, then yes. I would say, actually, if it's not warm that, anymore, then yes. But also, that, I guess I've that, spoiled myself because most of the time when I'm eating a bagel, it's fresh out the oven, which is the yeah, best no, way I, to eat a bagel. Most of the bagels I've eaten for the last three or so years are ones I have made or are fresh from two places who I very much trust. One of which is Zingerman's, the other of which is Nate and Al's <laughs> Delicatessen in LA. We are not sponsored by Zingerman's. <laughs> We are not. I am just unapologetically a fan. I love them. That's valid. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned this a couple times in this episode already, but again, I am a New Yorker. Evan is a devotee of Zingerman's in New York City. We have Second Avenue Deli, which I actually haven't been to in quite a while, but just another place that's really known for their classic Jewish foods. The matzo ball soup. I have their cookbook. They do have some challah recipes and stuff. But if you're looking for another really classic Jewish deli to check out, that's not in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and you're a little more likely to pass, I would recommend. Yeah, I understand that. Granted, Zingerman's was the first deli I had within the same city as me, because prior to that, the nearest Jewish deli was a three to four hour drive away. Yeah. Well, there's no Jewish deli in the city that I live now. So there I'm is one here. I haven't been. But now I actually can make a lot of the items. Yeah. Well, I very rarely eat meat. So I guess I'm not really searching for any hot pastrami. Another thing that I would highly recommend at Second Avenue Deli. Hot kosher pastrami with mustard. Oh, man. That sounds good. Man, it Uh, would kill my stomach, but it's good. That's it. We're good at tangents here. Yeah, we're Maybe very not good, at, good tangents. at tangents. We just have a lot of them. <laughs> well, yes. I cannot guarantee we, the quality. We have multiple things we enjoy, both in food and otherwise. So we <laughs> we like to discuss all of them. Oh, yeah. But So another thing that uh, a lot of people feel that are similar to bagels are bialis. Yeah. What's your opinion on bialis? I like them. I personally, I think they're fine. I have no, I've had them. And you know what? I think it's totally acceptable bread product, but it's not one that I have such a strong opinion on. I thoroughly enjoy them. I don't feel like there's something I must absolutely have, but if there's a good one available, I'm, I'm happy. For anyone who doesn't know, it's made with the same dough as a bagel, pretty much. It's not boiled. It doesn't have a hole. And instead, you just put a dimple in it and fill it with traditionally an onion poppy seed mix. Yeah, they're fine. They're, again, yeah. it's a totally acceptable bread. You know, they're kind of dinner rolly with something in there. I mean, like the quality yeah. of the bread is similar to a dinner roll, I would say. They're fine. I mean, they're traditional. I'm not overly attached to them in any way. But tasty again, enough. Again, growing I'd up someplace one. without a Jewish deli, when I was first at Atsa, I was like, oh, I really want to have these again because they are very good. So they stop being a treat. But a good bagel is just as good, if not better. Yeah. I would prefer a bagel, but I wouldn't turn down a bialy. Yeah, but you, I mean, you don't eat fish, but you could put like smoked salmon and cream cheese and everything else on a bagel. You don't do that on a bialy. Yeah. I also 
will still eat my bagel with cream cheese and pile. I, I haven't eaten fish in a very long time since I was a small child. <laughs> I know. I'm sure somebody's going to watch this and say, you're basically still a small child. For context, I haven't eaten fish in... It is more than half of my life. I stopped eating fish when I was seven. So bagel is still excellent with all the fixins, even if you don't have fish on there. Pile it high with with egg and cream cheese and red onion and avocado. Avocado is good on there. Tomato, just all that stuff on a bagel. You really just can't beat it. You know, I've had some great sandwiches. But oh, absolutely. Just a classic bagel. I would fully agree. So another interesting bread with at least some Jewish connection, especially to Israeli cuisine that we've got on the list today, we've got a few more, is pita, which is not specifically Jewish, obviously, but is very common in Israeli cuisine and Greek cuisine and all over the Eastern Mediterranean, thanks to it basically being how bread was produced in ancient Mesopotamia and Babylon. Yeah, which is pretty cool, you know, just hearing Mm -hmm. it's it seems like such a basic food and it is such a basic food and that's what gives it such a long and rich history i think that's really special absolutely i'm not very good at making it but hopefully we can talk about pita in more depth another time it is got a lot of history and i wish i had one with shawarma right now oh yeah falafel or Mm -hmm. ooh, i should make what's it called oh my god sabir another fun to uh, fun thing to stuff uh for my fellow vegetarians Another thing to stuff a pita with is an Israeli dish called sabich, which is a fried egg and eggplant. Super, super tasty. You stuff it with all the same fixins as you would a falafel or a shawarma. And then on top of it, you put this tart mango sauce called amba. Um, you can also, I often mango just sauce. use tahina. Yes, it's called amba. It's not for everybody. Not everybody likes it. It's very distinctive. Mm-hmm. It's also one of those dishes that is truly, truly Israeli, like nobody else claims the thing, but very tasty, unique, would recommend. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that. I'm going to have to look into that some more. Yeah. But going into another bread and doing some of the research for this, had you ever heard of Mona or Mona? No. When you first put that in in our notes for preparing for the podcast, at first I thought you were talking about mufleta, which is the traditional dish served at a mamuna. And I thought you, I thought it had just kind of the word had gotten mixed up there somewhere. But no, mm-hmm. what I was thinking of mufleta is a, a kind of pancakey bread that paint, you paint it with honey and it's made very quickly after Passover. I believe it's Moroccan Jewish tradition. I believe it's effectively a crepe, is it not? Kind of. It's a little more bready than that. I would say it's kind of in the same family as like a lava, I would say. Where it's kind of pancakey, it's kind of bready. Mm-hmm. You call it a bread and then you paint it with honey and it's very tasty and it's made very quickly. But Interesting. That's what I thought you were talking about when you said Muna. I've never heard of it. And now that you've mentioned it, obviously, being me, I want to try and make it. Uh, this I hadn't heard of it until I was doing some research for this episode. But it's an Algerian sweet bread of Sephardi origin that they say is similar to challah. And so for anyone who would like to uh, look it up, it is M-O-U-N-A. And it's used for Shabbat, found mostly in France and Israel. 
the Wikipedia page, which I'm looking at now, says that it's also related to Mamuna. Okay, yeah. It seems that based on the ingredients, it's sort of a spiced challah, but it does not, at least the images I've seen, appear to be braided. And it is a food that I was completely unaware of before and also used for breakfast. But challah also gets served at breakfast. And both of us are Ashkenazi, so a food we're not eminently familiar with, but always looking to learn more. Yeah. And again, if you're familiar or more familiar than us, which is pretty easy with Sephardic or Mizrahi food traditions, we would love to have you on to chat with you. Just pick your brain about it because we're amateurs, we are foodies, and we are always excited to learn more about other people's food and traditions. No, I absolutely would love to have somebody on from especially Mizrahi, Sephardi, or Beit Israel, or any of the other Jewish communities from around the world. Yeah. And if anyone wants to challenge Allison on bagels, I'm happy to get into this argument with somebody. And I recognize, again, I'm biased because I grew up in New York and that there's a, there's a, not a certain level. There's a lot of nostalgia associated with it for me. And that's fine. One of the things that's so big about food is food triggers so many memories for us. Food is such a a cornerstone to our memories and our nostalgia and where we come from. So Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm fine with you disagreeing with me on anything. And I think that's really important that we remember that we all have our food opinions and our food opinions are part of what makes us us. Yeah. I mean, it's fine if you disagree with me and I'm thrilled that other people have a different experience than I am and I'm thrilled that other people have a different experience than I do and that that's something that we can discuss and share with each other. Absolutely. I use the word debate and challenge more of, <laughs> oh, we'd love to have people on to discuss these things, not in a malicious, there will only be one winner with a wrestling bell in the background. There is never only one winner when it comes to eating tasty food. Well, I guess unless you eat all of it. There is never (laughs) only one winner when it comes to sharing our food with each other. Exactly. Quick honorable mention here. I feel like we can't really have an episode talking about Jewish breads without mentioning rye bread. And I feel like rye bread is something that really we should do a whole episode or at least one episode on traditional Jewish deli food. Yes, there's bagels. But when I talk about deli food, I mean, you know, Jewish... Classic kosher pickles, pastrami's. Pastrami's. Corn, corn, corn beef, beef, but pastrami's better. But corn beef is really pickled. Pastrami's pickled too, but yeah. corn beef. Uh, well, corn pastrami, pastrami is effectively corn beef with extra spice when yeah. done properly. Yeah. Uh, some of the other traditional foods, kishka, I always I, associate with delis. I love kishka. I uh, really do love a kishka. That was my dinner tonight. A plus. Love a good kishka. But anyways... Yeah. The point is that we can't really have a Jewish bread episode without mentioning rye mentioning bread rye. because rye bread is really, I would say, a classic Ashkenazi Jewish food, especially a classic American Ashkenazi Jewish food. But I feel like in terms of where it falls in of what we eat, we don't eat it on its own. It's part of the Jewish deli experience and kind of should get lumped mm-hmm. in with that. So Yeah, so in the future, we will do a deli episode because we have to. And we'd love to hear what are some of your deli favorites. 
Yes. Uh, Anything in particular you'd like us to discuss, let us know. And we've mentioned just another quick mention for the unfermented bread in Judaism. There's only really one, and that is matzah. Matzah on my feet. Now, isn't that a story that just can't be beat? Sorry. One of those songs from a music time at my Jewish day school from many, many years ago just popped into my head there. Perfectly fine. I don't think we'll get copyright problems. No. Nobody's (laughs) copywriting that parody version of the song. Exactly. We will, I'm sure, also talk about future episodes, talk about matzah with Passover and some of the other rules around Passover. Quickly, before we go, I wanted to go again through some of the resources that are in the show notes today. We have the Gefilte Manifesto, which is a great cookbook, not just breads and fermented products, but you can also have all sorts of traditional old world Jewish cuisines accessible in a modern American kitchen. That's where I got my chopped liver recipe. The Zingerman's Bakehouse Cookbook, which for me brings back a lot of memories. I think both Allison and I are big fans of Claire Saffitz, formerly of BA. She has a great book that I've read through and a YouTube channel as well with all sorts of desserts, including I believe she also has done a challah and some and bagels. Her book is called Dessert Person, and her YouTube channel is the same. Allison, of course, mentioned the Second Avenue Deli Cookbook uh, on breads and Jewish cooking in general. You've got both the Jewish cooking subreddit and r slash bread it we'll also include the babka recipe and the challah recipe that i use the babka recipe is from chabad.org there's i know there's all sorts of other stuff on chabad.org but they do have a whole bunch of really classic jewish recipes i've been using their babka one for years and i would highly recommend it chabad in general is a great resource for a lot of things about judaism whether you're part of chabad or not yeah anything else you want to say today before we go that's about it for me Happy eating, happy drinking, and happy fermenting. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Shebrews Hebrews, a Jewish fermenting podcast, brought to you by myself, Evan Harris, and Allison Shea. This podcast was edited by Evan Harris and is produced by Evan Harris and Allison Shea. As always, you can find the podcast along with our show notes and full podcast transcripts uh, on our website, as well as you can find the podcast on Instagram at Jewish Fermentation Podcast. Please remember to drink responsibly, and thank you for listening.